Good morning, PBC. It is good to be here. You know, that's great because nobody ever says good morning to me when I say it at my church. That was good. Uh, hey, I, before I start, I just want to tell you what a joy it is to be here, but also how much I love your pastors <laughs> and how fortunate you are, I hope you know, to have pastors like them who love you, who love the community, and uh, they are in particular so instrumental in bringing churches around this area together to work. And this is, I think, our fourth collaborative sermon series. It's always been my prayer that we do so many of these that I don't remember how many we've done, and we're almost there. And it's our, our fourth one together, and each one is, um, it's so powerful to be able to work together. And I'm glad to be here, and I, I've loved it when your pastors come to preach at our church as well. Um, uh, what should I tell you about myself? My wife always says I need to introduce myself. I, I am married, and I have two kids, and I've been here in the Bay Area my whole life, but only here in the peninsula for the last 17 years. Me and Paul came at about the same time. And my church is a Chinese church. I'm the English pastor, we call that. Doesn't mean I'm from Britain. It means that uh, we have a Cantonese, Mandarin, and English congregations. And I'm the English pastor, and it's a, been a joy to work at this church uh, for all of these years. Um, I, I want to tell you a little bit about me by this. Um, I, just, I flew in really late last night from LA, uh, just so I could be here this morning, because uh, we were at the, the funeral of my uh, my wife's grandfather in L.A. He, he lived up here for the last many years, uh, but he passed away at the age of 100. And, uh, and so it wasn't a sad memorial, right? Because somebody who lives that long and who lives such a full life, and uh, we're there and just hearing the stories uh, from people about this very faithful, Christ-loving man. And... Um, and as you do at a memorial service, I was sitting there reflecting on uh, how he's impacted my life. And I was remembering the first time uh, that I met him. My wife took me to uh, his, her grandparents' apartment, and, and they were living in San Francisco. And uh, this is, he was such a quiet, introverted guy, right? And uh, he sat down. The first things I ever heard from this guy uh, is his story about how his father who was like a drug addict in China and just not a very good guy, he ran into some missionaries from China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's organization in China. And his father sat down with these missionaries and they shared the gospel with him. And uh, it just transformed his life. And this is the first introduction I had to like the, the long legacy my wife's family had. And... Um, I'm just sitting there, and I'm sitting in this memorial service, and I'm looking at all these people, all these family members, all the way through great-grandchildren, right? And I was like, man, it is crazy how God can transform your life and the lives of so many other people in a moment. And in this man's life that I've been so fortunate to be in contact with through my wife, uh, God transformed all these lives. And so the message for me was, I need to have more anticipation in my life. And so as we open up in a word of prayer, I want to pray for you to have anticipation. Because we should live with the kind of anticipation that says, man, at any second, God could transform me. And it's not just going to transform my heart and my life, but it could touch lives beyond what I could possibly imagine. And so can we pray that this morning as we go into his word? And uh, 
And then we'll look and continue this Lenten series. All right, let's pray. Father God, we want to come to you with great anticipation. You didn't bring us here by accident this morning, God. Uh, We may think that, yeah, we got up and we put clothes on and we went to church and decided not to watch online. Uh, But actually, God, you want us to be here. And not because of what I have to say, but because of what you have to say to each person here, God. You have the power to transform us at any moment. And we want to live in that anticipation, in the waiting, wanting that desiring that and knowing that you can do it. And so, Father, we pray as we get into your word, as we continue in this time, leading towards Easter and leading towards the cross and the resurrection, Father God, that we'll do it in great anticipation of how you will move us and change us, help us to desire you more in the midst of it, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we have gone through quite a journey, right, in this sermon series We started off um, with Jesus predicting his suffering and his death. And I know his disciples couldn't possibly comprehend what this was going to look like. They couldn't comprehend the truth of what he's saying. They just wanted him to stop talking sometimes about it because they didn't want to hear it. Uh, But for us, 2,000 years later, we know how this story ends. And, And we can walk through this time of Lent knowing that the cross is just on the horizon. We're so close to Easter. And uh, at my church, I always encourage people during Lent to actually give something up uh, during Lent. And so I have all these angry people at church all the time because they gave up coffee or they gave up sweets. I have a whole bunch of kids at church who gave up video games for this 40 days of Lent, and they are seriously like, they want to punch me every Sunday. Why did you tell us to do this? Uh, And so on a really real level, they are anticipating Easter coming, right? But we also get to do that. And I hope you've used this time of Lent to, to anxiously anticipate what God is doing and, and what God wants to continue to do for you. Um, because we're almost there. We're almost there. And if you haven't used the time up till now to to take space and to say, God, this time's for you. God, this time I want to walk with you. I want to journey with you to the cross through suffering, through celebration, through hope and despair. Uh, It's not too late. Because as we look at this portion of scripture this morning, we're going to hit this time were for the disciples, something that seemed very, very ethereal in nature in Jesus predicting his death and suffering is starting to become so real for them. They're starting to think, oh no, everything he said, it's coming true. It's getting bad. It's going to be bad for him. It's going to be bad for us. Because up until this point, uh, the author Mark has He's given us a lot of action, really, right? So if you've been following along in the sermon series, uh, especially since Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's so much action. He, he's lauded as he comes into the city, and people are shouting Hosanna and waving palm leaves, and then he overturns the tables of the money changers, and he shouts against the hypocrisy of the leaders of the temple. He, he, he's challenged by these religious leaders, and as Jesus does, He challenges them right back, right? They don't like it. And he pretty much starts the ticking time bomb of his demise by challenging them in public. And 
He has the Last Supper, and then he's arrested. Peter cuts off the ear of a servant. Jesus heals it. It's just action. It's nonstop action. And then Mark brings us barreling. He's just barreling at high speed to the cross. And then we hit this part, the scripture that we're going to look at this morning. Everything grinds to a halt. We find ourselves from all this action to this bumbling, bogged down kangaroo court of a trial that we're going to see in a little bit. I don't know if you watch the show Law and Order. See, I'm aging myself because I love that show. Right. But in Law and Order, half of it's always just the investigation of the crime. And there's a lot of action. There's a lot of witty banner between cops, because that's how the cops talk. Right? And, uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, boom. Right? It stops. And then you're in the courtroom. And then it gets boring, because everybody's just sitting down. Right? That's where we are now. We are going from all the action to boom, boom, the court. And that's where we are right now. We're going to start with Mark, chapter 14, verse 53. It says, they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So here we are, Mark setting the scene. This arrest, this cutting off of the ear, there's healing. It's intense. And then here we are, Jesus is led to the high priest. It says he comes from the Garden of Gethsemane, and eventually he finds himself at Caiaphas, the high priest's home. And there waiting for him are leaders of the people of Israel, the Sanhedrin. They're basically the supreme court of Israel. And the trial setting is set. We don't know how many of the Sanhedrin are there. It's the middle of the night. Uh, If all of them are there at Caiaphas' house, there's like 71 people there. 71 people there set to put Jesus on trial in the middle of the night. Mark's describing here the breaking of all the Jewish process of law, for the most part. Uh, Some scholars say as many as 18 Mosaic laws when it comes to trials are broken during this trial of Jesus. 18, here's some of them. You're not supposed to have trials at night, right? Uh, Trials like this could never be held the day before a high holy day, like Passover, which is going to happen the next day. That is illegal for them to meet. Uh, The accused in any trial is supposed to have a friend in court. And yet Mark notes that Peter is just right outside, but not invited in. There's no friend in court for him. Trials like this were supposed to last at least two days. But we know this thing's going to be over in a few hours, and he's not going to get a second day in court. And finally, there has to be two or three agreeing witnesses to any crime, according to Jewish law. And Mark says very clearly in the next scripture, this doesn't happen. He says, the chief priests and the whole council, they're seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They already know the outcome they want. They're seeking testimony that's going to get Jesus there. And it says they found none. Nobody would give them the testimony that they're looking for in this trial. And so it says, uh, many bore bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. So they try to get people to lie. It's totally fixed. 
But even then, they couldn't even get their story straight because the whole thing is a mock, a mockery of justice. And uh, we'll capture the story of verse 57. It says, some stood up and bore false witness against him. And here's what they said. They said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple. This temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But in verse 59, Mark says, yet even then, even all these guys who've been told what to say, even then, their testimony did not agree. The final law that is broken in the midst of this trial is that nobody's testimony is straight. Mark is telling us this whole thing is fixed. It's worse than you could possibly imagine for a, a lack of justice. People are planted in the audience in the middle of the night at the high priest's house, not in a court. They give false testimony, and even then, they can't even get it right. It's a mess. It's a mess. And so what happens next? I want you to feel the drama of it, okay? Because basically, everything's going wrong. Everything is going wrong. And so it says that the high priest Caiaphas, he's watching this whole thing unravel before him. He thought he had it figured out. He's like, we, we got to get this right. And he decides to take matters into his own hands. Let's look at verse 60. Uh, oh, uh, here, let me tell you what verse 60 is. Because what happens is, Caiaphas, it says, stood up in the midst of this trial. And he asked Jesus himself, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So Caiaphas stands up. Can you imagine this scene? Caiaphas, robes, the most powerful man in the room, stands up. And he says, you, Jesus, what do you have to say about all these lies that you've just heard? And he says a really weird thing. He says, what do you think these men are saying about you? What do you think you did wrong? And the scripture tells us Jesus says nothing. He remains silent. He makes no answer. And then comes this, verse 61. Caiaphas says, all right, look. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And this time Jesus answers. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Are you the Messiah, he says. Are you the Savior we've been waiting for for generation and generation? Do you think you are, at least? Are you the Son of Adonai? And Jesus says, yes, I am. That's the first things that he says in this whole trial. I am. But he doesn't just stop there. He continues by saying, not only am I everything you just said, but you're going to see me seated at the right hand of God in a seat of judgment over you. Now, what I want us to look at very closely in this scripture is what uh, Jesus is saying, which is very interesting. It also shows the weakness of the English language. That's what I think. I was an English major in college. 
And uh, while I was in college, I was, I was also studying Chinese because I was preparing to go long-term as a missionary to China. Uh, and I didn't know any Chinese or anything about China, really. Um, but after like the umpteenth time of a Chinese professor telling me, this is a word in Chinese, but you don't have anything like that in English. And then me studying English at the same time, I started to realize English is not a very good language. Uh, yeah. That's why we have to admire, I think, the great writers of the world like Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson, who can make English such a beautiful thing. Because most of the time, if you compare English to other world languages, it's kind of like uh, trying to cut a rope with a baseball bat instead of a samurai sword, right? Uh, English is a blunt instrument of language. And uh, here we're going to see uh, kind of how weak English is, but I also want to show you um, how much you could do with the scripture and how much Jesus is saying when he says, you're going to see the Son of God, me, seated at the right hand of power, God. See, because what's intriguing here is the word see. That's the one I want you to look at, right? It says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man. Uh, in Greek, there's actually six different words for the word see, all right? And uh, there's two really commonly used words. The first, this word means to be able to see physically with your eyes. See, the thing with English is we have one word, see. In Greek, there's six words for the same thing, and each one with a special nuance. This one that he's using here is saying, I physically, with the use of my eyes, biologically can see. Okay, that's what this word see means. And uh, the other word that's often used in the Bible, probably used more, and even Mark uses it more, is one of the first Greek words I learned in seminary. I still remember it. But it's translated into English as see, but it kind of means to see and understand and perceive what I'm seeing. You know what I mean? So the first one is I can see things physically with my eyes. And the second one is I see things and I know what they are. I kind of understand more what they are. Uh, maybe we can distinguish the first one as see and the second one as see, right? Okay, uh, we have this in Chinese actually. There's a Chinese phrase for those of you who are Chinese. Uh, there's a phrase called kan bu kan jian. Kan means to see, to be able to see physically. Kanjen means to be able to see and understand what I'm able, what I'm looking at. Uh, and so we often say, kanjen, like I can see, I see something. It's not that I'm blind, it's that I don't really know what I'm looking at. Uh, so when we say kanjen, it means I see, but I don't really know what I'm seeing. Uh, so we're going to look at some scripture. I just want you to look at some scripture to understand that. I want to look first at the, the story that Mark tells of the blind man at Bethsaida. Because in this scripture, there's a man who's born blind and he comes to Jesus and he wants to be healed. And it says Jesus spits on his eye and, and touches him and suddenly the man can see. And then Jesus says to him, do you see anything? That's what scripture says. Jesus says, do you see anything? And it says in the scripture, the blind man looks up at Jesus and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And it says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I don't know how you read this scripture. You could read it and say, Jesus messed up the first time, right? Jesus messed up, gave him a bad prescription. 
and then touches him again, and oh, now it's 2020. No, I don't think it's like that. Jesus, the man asked for a sight the first time, and Jesus gives him his sight. But this man, being blind, and, and probably because people in his community and the, people, the Jewish people would have considered him cursed, had never ever gotten a chance to even touch people or know what they feel like or know what they're supposed to look like. It's not like he was just like touching people because they didn't want to be cursed themselves. So he had no concept of what people might look like. And so even though his eyes are open the first time, the miracle is perfect, he's looking around and said, the only thing I can reference here is these people look like trees. I've touched trees. They're kind of long, stemmy branches, right? If you look at yourself, honestly, that's what you are. You're a trunk with some branches if you were blind, right? And, and so it's, it's an amazing miracle the second time because the second time Jesus touches them again. And this time he does more than transform his eyes. He transforms his mind. And in one moment, Jesus gives him the ability to understand everything that he's seeing. And here in the scripture, it uses these two words, see. It says, I see people. Just with my eyes. I just see, but I don't have any idea what I'm looking at. They just look like trees walking around, right? The second time, he says he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything. He saw and he perceived, okay? So that's how I want you to understand this. One more, just really quickly, just to show show you the depth of this other word, see, uh, we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler that probably, if you've grown up at church, you know pretty well. Uh, it says, you know, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how can I get eternal life? And then Jesus says, follow the commandments. And the guy says, oh, you know, I followed all the commandments and I know them all. And it says, after that, Jesus looks at him, looks at him. That's one of the beauty of what I like this word. It's not that Jesus looked at him and was like, oh, you're dressed nice, uh, You're probably a rich guy. No, it says Jesus looked at him and in that moment understood everything about him. That's one word, right? And it says, and he loved him. When he looked at him and he understood everything about him, he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Uh, Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me, right? With one look, Jesus understood what this whole guy's deal was and said, you know what's going to work for you? Come follow me. And we know the guy didn't do it, which is too bad for him, right? But what I want you to see here is that when Jesus says to the Sanhedrin, he says, you're going to see the Son of Man come in power, he uses that first one, just see. He doesn't use the the word that says, you're going to see and understand what's happening. He's basically saying to the Sanhedrin, You're going to see something amazing right now, and you're going to have no idea what you're looking at. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Jesus chooses his word and says, you're going to see, you're going to see physiologically something happen, but you're going to totally misunderstand the whole thing. You're going to think that you won. You're going to think that you put this whole trial together, fixed it, made it work, even though it was terrible, and you did a horrible job. You're going to think it worked. You're going to get me crucified. You're going to get rid of your greatest antagonist. But Jesus says, oh, 
if you could really see, if you could really see what's happening right now, you would know that on that cross, death has lost its sting. You would know that sins have been forgiven. Redemption has entered into this world. He says, you leaders of the law, you're going to see me nailed on a tree, but I see unconditional love. I see lives that will be transformed. I see that hope has arrived. I may be the suffering servant, but I'm also the conquering king. And you can't see any of it. Can you? PBC, can we? When Scott put this sermon series together, I was like, why, why this? Why suffering, servant, conquering king? And I loved his heart for it. He said, you know, we've gone through a lot of suffering these last three years. All of us. It connects us. My church, your church, the other four churches that are doing the sermon series together, every believer, every person in our community, every person around us is hurt, is suffering. Stock market's crazy. The weather is crazier somehow. Banks are failing and layoffs are happening throughout this tech sector. Politics divide us. There's racial tensions. This pandemic seems to never end. At my church, they're still wearing masks every day. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah, okay. Uh, glad to be here on many levels. Friends, there's so much to see. There's so much hurt to look at and observe and see in our world. You can sit in it. You can be in it. But in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, Jesus invites us this morning to look beyond hurt and suffering, the ways that it's affecting us, our children, our community. Um, I would just say in Chinese, sometimes we kan bukan jian, we see. We're not really understanding what we're seeing. Because Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus says, God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The great story of this trial isn't Jesus going to the cross. The great story of this trial is a known victory in him. I told you uh, I just came from my wife's grandfather's funeral Days before he passed away, I brought my family. I have two teenage kids, and we went to go visit him in hospice. We knew he didn't have a lot of time, uh, and it was hard for him to talk. I, I'm pretty sure he was in some pain, and uh, it was hard for him to just communicate very well at that point. But as we, you know, we spent time with him and just held his hand, and he said, um, pray for me. Just pray for me. I want to go home to Jesus. 
will you pray that Jesus will take me home? And uh, the four of us, me and my wife and two kids were like, let's pray for him. And my kids looked at me with panic in their eyes. And my son, knowing that uh, his great-grandfather is pretty deaf anyway, said to me way too loudly, am I supposed to pray for him to die? <laughs> and uh, that's a hard father moment, right? And I said, just pray for him to have peace and peacefully go home. And so the four of us held his hand and prayed for him to be with Jesus. What a weird thing to pray for someone to die. That's what my son saw, cut to the quick, right? And yet, what a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, my wife's grandfather, he, he could see. He could see beyond his pain and the end of his life because he knows that in Jesus, he had the victory. And that's what we're called to as we go with Mark and as we walk with Jesus to the cross. We're invited by this scripture. We're invited by it to go with our eyes open and with the ability to see what Jesus is doing. Good Friday is a horrible time. Your, Paco's announcement was like, this is going to be dark right? This Good Friday service is going to be a dark time, but it's also our greatest time of victory because of what Jesus has done. But we have to ask ourselves in the midst of everything that's happening in our world, do we see? Are we seeing what Jesus wants us to see? Or are we just seeing all the stuff? Just seeing. I wanted to show you this last thing, just a Biblical, interesting thing. We started off the series at Mark 8. We ended kind of a cycle with Mark 14. In Mark 8, Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter screams out, you're the Messiah. In Mark 14, at the end of this, it's Caiaphas who said, are you the Messiah? In Mark 8, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. And in Mark 14, Mark 14, Mark shows us that Jesus is spit on, and he's beaten, and he's mocked. In Mark 8, Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. The disciples must have thought that was so bizarre, such a weird thing for him to predict about himself. How could he get in front of these guys, let alone be rejected by them? And yet here we are in Mark 14. It's all come true, and in this Mark is truly inviting us into the last act of this Passion Week, the last act of the cross, and he invites us to do it, eyes wide open, seeing. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that this is more than a story. It's a call. It's a call for us as your followers to be able to go to the cross with you, understanding everything that you're doing for us, doing it with celebration, doing it with dread, 
walking with you in your pain, but doing it with the greatest of hope. Father, we ask you to spend these next two weeks as we go towards Easter with amazing anticipation for what you want to do in our lives, for how you want to overcome the hurts and pains of this world, to be victorious in it. Your church will win. Jesus won this trial, even though it looks like a loss. Your ways will prevail in this world. And Father God, it is a privilege for us to be a part of it. God, help us. Open our eyes this morning. If they're shut, help us to truly see. God, just like that blind man in Bethsaida, we ask you'll lay your hands on us a second time. Transform our minds from fear and anxiety to great victory in you. We thank you for who you are, God worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.